Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of reconnecting with Scott Emmons. Scott is the COO of MD Logic and a fellow health entrepreneur. Today, we spoke at great length about one of my favorite supplements, myo inositol. We spoke extensively about what it is, its mechanism of action, especially in the brain and with neurotransmitters, the net impact on the blood brain barrier as well as clinical considerations and relevant research with regard to metabolic health, sleep and sleep architecture, and how we go about supplementing what things can actually deplete our ability to create myo-inositol in our bodies and why supplementation can be hugely impactful. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Well, I'm delighted and excited to have Scott Emmons back. He's the COO of MD Logic. And Scott, you know, I'm really excited to have this conversation today about inositol. I am too, Cynthia. I have to say this molecule, although I've known about it for quite some time, as I did the research for this, really opened my eyes up to it. So I'm thrilled to have it. And my first question for you is when you decided to make your next supplement inositol, what was it that made you choose inositol? And for the audience, what is inositol? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's important to be fully transparent and share with everyone that sleep over the last eight to 10 years has been elusive at many in many instances. And so I'm always looking for ways to improve my quality of sleep to ensure that I am getting restful sleep. I mean, now I track my metrics on my aura ring. But about a year and a half ago, you know, I was already aware of myo-inositol, which is a specific type of inositol, which we'll talk about in a second. And I decided to just guinea pig. I was like, okay, I'm going to take this before bed. I'm going to see what net impact it has on my sleep. And, you know, this is the experimentation of the N of one, the power of how important that is. And what I found is when I woke up in the morning, I didn't just feel more rested my sleep metrics absolutely recorded deeper and longer deep sleep. And for anyone that is familiarized with deep and REM sleep, they both have different purposes. One is really focused on brain health. The other one is really focused on bodily health. But as we are getting older, it sometimes can be more challenging to get high quality deep and REM sleep. And so over the course of about six months, I was able to you know adjust dosages timing. I started including it in a lot of my treatment protocols with my own patients and clients. And happily, the N of one became N of 20 or 30. And then from there, I started talking more about it. But if we're talking specifically about this particular form of inositol, myo-inositol is a type of sugar alcohol, and it's actually the most abundant inositol in the body, making up 95% of free inositol. It's found within cell membranes. It's sometimes referred to as a vitamin, although that's really a misnomer. Vitamin B8, it's not a true vitamin because our bodies can actually make myo-inositol. And we can sometimes get it from foods in our diets, whether it's fruits and nuts and grains and beans. But we'll discuss later why some people may not be able to extract a lot of inositol from their foods. 
And we know that it acts as a signaling agent. I mean, it's not just about brain health. We know it can actually help with blood sugar, which for most of our listeners, you know, talking about metabolic health is obviously a huge focus of my work. And then interestingly enough, it's also a nootropic agent. It helps the brain with cell signaling. And, you know, to me, the more I learned about it, it was not just a supplement for women with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, although the research is really solid in that area, but it's a supplement that I've seen really compelling uh, clinical results from patients, not just with improvement in blood sugar, but also improvement in cognition and sleep quality. And so that's really the basis of the supplements that we're working on together is to make sure that they are focused in these areas, which are the areas I think most of our listeners are concerned about as well. And that alone is quite a list of things that this, you know, <laughs> this particular supplement can address, but there are more, which is interesting. To take a step back, you mentioned that it's a sugar alcohol. So for our keto friends and people that are wondering, well, how does something that has a sugar alcohol in it, how does that support metabolic health? So articulate sort of or walk the audience through how that works. Yeah. So it's not the sugar alcohol that we're thinking of that's, you know, contrived in a lab per se, that we're trying to increase the sweetness of a a product and make it keto friendly. This is really speaking to the ability to move glucose into the cell. So intracellularly and the stimulation of specific mechanisms in the cell, you know, there's this glute floor translocation, which is a fancy way of saying it's going to make it much more readily accepted into the cell. So, you know, we know if only 7% of the population right now is metabolically flexible, this is something that most, if not all of us want to be concerned about. The other thing that's interesting is it can actually play a role in regulating the release of free fatty acids from adipose tissue. So this can be impactful if we are fasting and in a fasted state, we are trying to utilize either stored sugar or stored free fatty acids as a fuel source, it's going to help facilitate that by, you know, keeping our insulin levels a bit lower. And then interestingly enough, it can actually promote the conversion from glucose to glycogen. Glycogen Mm. is stored sugar. And so we store glycogen in our skeletal muscle and our livers, hopefully not too much of it. So that we end up developing something called nofl D or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But there's several different mechanisms that can help with insulin sensitivity that are of particular interest to me. And, you know, for those of us that are out there that are metabolically flexible, it can be very effective to help with maintaining insulin sensitivity. And for those that are actively working on improving their metabolic health can be useful as well. So a couple of things there that I just wanted to circle back on. First is, you know, when we talk about the sugar and the fasting, you know, we're going to get questions on, does this break my fast? So I guess that's question one, would inositol technically break your fast given that it is actually working to pull in the sugar? What are your thoughts there? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think it's always in the context of what is the greatest value. So from my perspective, if we are going from, you know, maybe let's say our blood sugars within a healthy range and we take inositol in a fasted state, I'm more concerned about making sure that you are maintaining this insulin sensitivity than I am about, you know, the concerns. And I know it gets very granular, very nuanced. I know that I would say 50% of the questions that my team and I field on social media on a given day is related to does X break my fast? So typically I take inositol in the evening, usually at the tail end of my feeding window. That's when I will take it. 
but I have plenty of patients as an example that have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And if you look at the clinical research, the recommendation is usually two grams twice a day. Mm -hmm. So very likely they are taking their inositol in a fasted state and in a fed state. And so I think it really comes down to what are your goals? From my perspective, this is one of those gray areas. I'm completely comfortable with my patients taking this in a fasted state and not worrying about you know whether or not this is breaking a clean fast. This is very different than someone taking, let's just say one of the you know keto sweeteners in something in a fasted state and wondering what's going on. This is actually helping to improve that insulin sensitivity. So for me, I'm less concerned about it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's the perfect response for folks to make it clear that this is an individual need. What are you taking it for specifically? What's the core reason you're taking it? And then you can determine when you're taking it. But I think the benefit of when you take it in a fasted state, given let's use the PCOS you know, example, might be a fasted state is a perfectly valid and more important reason to take it than worry about whether it's going to have a minor impact on your fast or not. So I think you know, it really does come down to individual choices, individual specific goals. And I think for a lot of people, when they're getting nuanced about does X item beverage supplement break my fast, the bigger question is, are you insulin sensitive? Are you metabolically healthy? If you are, I'm less concerned about what you are, these little tiny little choices that you're making, as opposed to someone who may be new to intermittent fasting, maybe new to these kinds of products, maybe has been quite sedentary, has you know, 25, 50 pounds to lose. Then we have to get much more deliberate. And these are individuals that likely would benefit from a bit more than opposed to a little bit less. But with that being said, it's always in the context of what are your goals, you know, what are your, you know, metabolic health threshold at this point in time? And you can make adjustments. Yeah, and I think the key there is if metabolic health is what you're seeking, then that is the key. And if you are metabolically flexible and healthy, you know, breaking the fast with minor things here and there are not going to make uh, much of a difference. What will make us much more, in my opinion, you could disagree, is that your metabolic health and overall flexibility is going to be a much more important factor long-term than whether you stuck to your fast precisely or not. Yeah. And I I think this is a good time to just interject that sometimes we get caught up in the little details when in essence, we should be, you know, at it flying at 30,000 feet where we're kind of looking down on collectively, what are all the choices we're making throughout the day, throughout the week and what net impact, you know, how is your sleep? How are you managing your stress? Are you lifting weights? Are you eating a nutrient dense whole food diet, which could look a little different for everyone? Are you eating enough protein? Are you satiated? Those things to me as a rule are, you know, they take precedence over one supplement and it's not to ignore the questions that I know will be forthcoming with regard to this, but just keeping your eye on the big picture, as opposed to worrying about little bits of minutia, you know, sometimes we'll get questions on social media about a particular type of tea or a particular type of coffee. And, you know, we'll say, let's look at the ingredient list. Let's educate ourselves. What could be contributing to what your concern is about? But I think sometimes people get fixated on one thing and they're not looking at the big picture. Agreed. And and sleep is a great example. You know, if you don't get sufficient sleep, you are going to have metabolic insufficiencies or perhaps your blood sugar will spike. You'll crave sweet foods. I mean, that's been proven time and time again. If you're sleep deprived, especially over a long period of time, even one day, frankly, but it will have, you go less than six hours of sleep, you're going to have impacts on your blood sugar that are not going to be positive. So everything matters. And the, all of those things combined, to your point, I think, is really where it the rubber meets the road in terms of your metabolic flexibility and health. 
Yeah. And I think it goes without saying that when we're talking about sleep, I always like to mention sleep is foundational to our health. If you're not getting a quality sleep, everything else is secondary to that. So don't overfast or don't fast at all. If you can't figure out why you're not sleeping well, there's so many women in particular, I don't want to pick on women, but you know, I know for myself, the first couple of years I was in perimenopause, my sleep, it was like an art form. I had to figure out the right things I needed to do to get myself to sleep through the night. But to your point, we know even one night of sleep can be detrimental to our metabolic health, can contribute to insulin resistance, will raise cortisol, will cause us to, you know, want to eat junk and not broccoli and chicken. And so just understanding that, you know, if you're not sleeping well, that's the first thing to work on before you even worry about anything else, get your sleep dialed in, figure out why you're not sleeping and then, you know, fit all the other pieces into the puzzle. Agree. One of the things I like about inositol is not only that it helps with your deep sleep, but it helps with your entire sleep structure, meaning your each phase, right? You've got, you had mentioned the various phases and it helps with structuring that and sleep so that you get sort of the perfect balance. I shouldn't say perfect, but a better balance, an improved balance. That was really interesting to me. So I guess we could move on if we're good to into mechanisms of action into the cell. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we're talking about how myo-inositol, and I know that's a bit of a mouthful. So maybe for listeners, I'm going to just say inositol, but the product that we are talking about is myo-inositol. And, and in the supplement world, if you see inositol, that is myo-inositol. Generally, yes. 99% of the time, if it says it's just inositol, that's going to be myo-inositol. Other most common is dichiro-inositol. And there's reasons that you don't necessarily want to use it. And if you do, it has to be in a very precise amount. And it's probably best off to start with myo-inositol just by itself for a lot of clinical reasons. But just inositol pretty much means myo-inositol unless it says dichiro. And that's a different, totally different ball of wax, which you got to be very careful with. Absolutely. So such a good point. So when we're talking about our cells, we know that it plays a role in DNA repair. And as we're getting older, we are more likely to be having issues with our mitochondria, which are the effectively the powerhouses of our cells. So DNA repair, it's absolutely essential for that. It helps regulate cell metabolism. Again, these are kind of nerdy little caveats, but really important to understand that this supplement in particular is working at the cellular level and not just kind of this extraneous topics. Um, we hope, we know it's very important for the component of the cell membrane. Our cell membranes are important for communication between cells. And so understanding that as we are getting older, as things are maybe not working as efficiently, this is why I really like the idea of using inositol in conjunction with fasting, you know, whether you're taking this at the tail end of your feeding window or incorporating it throughout your day, understanding that at a very basic level, this can help your cells become more efficient, have more energy, be able to improve communication between cells, which yeah, the older I get, the more I think about things on a, a bit more detailed level, because I realize, you know, how humbling it is to understand how our bodies work effectively. Truly. I mean, our bodies are kind of a miracle. If you think about it, how many different things have to go right for your body to work. It's amazing. We can get up in the morning sometimes. <laughs> true. Very um, true. <laughs> so component of the cell membrane and the cell membrane is uh, typically like the fatty layer around that. And mitochondria have their own cell membrane as well, correct? They do. So this phospholipid bilayer, and, and this is why things that we're exposed to our environment or personal care products or food can all impact this in positive or negative ways. So understanding that we are contributing to components that are going to make this protective layer more effective and allow it to be optimized is certainly very exciting. 
Absolutely. And we know that mitochondrial health leads to so many other things too, uh, including brain health. So excellent. Now, the number of things that inositol, bioinositol, we're speaking about in particular, and we'll just say inositol to, to keep it easy, but <laughs> it's all when we say inositol, we're saying myoinositol. But the amount of things that uh, this product has been clinically studied for in the brain, and then the amount of new and upcoming research really blew me away. You know, I had known about inositol for many years. I've known many people that have taken it. But when I started to get into the research, as you and I were preparing the product and preparing uh, this podcast, I just was really blown away by the amount of influence you know, this could have on your mood, on your cognition, on the speed of your brain, on your sleep architecture. So let's talk about the things in the brain and, and why you think it works there and why that's so important. And what are the core key things that are sort of provable that we can stand behind the clinical data on? Well, we know inositol is very effective with brain signaling. And again, as we've already talked about, it's a component of our cellular membranes. But Starting with protection of the blood-brain barrier, you know, being a previous ER nurse, there are specific substances that can cross the blood-brain barrier and others that cannot. Now that we understand a whole lot more about the gut microbiome and the interrelationship between leaky gut, leaky brain, understanding that inositol can be beneficial in helping to kind of strengthen that blood-brain barrier. You know, the blood-brain barrier is designed to protect us, but in many instances do through lifestyle, personal care choices, et cetera, can weaken this and can allow us to absorb substances into the brain that do not belong. I also think about neuroplasticity, which is this kind of concept where it allows us to create new neural pathways. Um, it's also particularly beneficial with commonly recognized neurotransmitters like dopamine and acetylcholine and GABA and serotonin, understanding that it can strengthen and improve these specific neurotransmitter pathways, as well as communication between the neurotransmitters. You know, I think about glutamic acid or glutamate and GABA. GABA is this inhibitory neurotransmitter and glutamate is this excitatory neurotransmitter and making sure that we're influencing the right neurotransmitter at the right time. You don't want to be you know, stimulated when you're trying to go to bed. You want to have this inhibitory you know, communication with GABA in particular. I also think about assisting and regulating sodium levels. You know, we talk a lot about electrolytes on this podcast and how important they are. Knowing that inositol is involved in the regulation of sodium, there's a sodium potassium pump in the body across these cellular membranes. And this in and of itself helps with maintenance of myelin sheaths that protect our neurons. So down to regulating electrolytes, but also protecting the fatty myelin sheath that allows for proper transmission of impulses in between different brain cells, I found particularly interesting. I would have to agree. I'll start there, but there were a lot of things I want to unpack with that one because so the myelin sheaths to, to bring it into layman's terms are like the rubber around an electric cord. And that rubber around electric cords keeps other electric cords from touching each other and shorting out. So I think it was ADLS, which was a nerve disease, the movie Lorenzo's Oil. Do you remember that movie? I do. And his son had that disease. And I'm, I might be getting the acronyms wrong or the, the verbiage wrong, but it was basically a disease of the myelin sheaths not being you know, properly built. So your myelin sheaths are so important because if they're not created well in your brain, then your neurons don't, even if you have the neurons, but the myelin sheaths are brittle or not connected, you can have little shorts, little skips, and your cognition can decline. And that goes for all of your nerves, right? You've got to have really good myelin sheaths, which also goes back to the point on that bilipid layer that protects the cell. That's a little bit like a myelin sheath for the cell, different mechanism, but you've got to prevent those 
the short circuit. So that's really important for brain health and overall function cognition. So I found that fascinating. The other thing, just to tap into it, as you had mentioned, the how it works with choline, et cetera. There was a study I read that choline in combination with myoinositol is also beneficial. Now, choline in itself is really good for your brain if you're not getting enough in your diet. So that's something we can talk about down the road. But I do take choline every day with my inositols, with my black coffee. And by the way, it does sweeten my coffee just a smidge. It's not like sugar, but just a tiny little sweet taste. So it's really made my black coffee more pleasurable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny when I was, after I was hospitalized four years ago, I remember I got out of the hospital and I craved red meat and I craved eggs. So eggs are rich in choline and I have eggs every single day, sometimes four or five at a time. And so I love that, you know, you're seeing this improvement and taking choline on a daily basis. And then the interrelationship with inositol makes a great deal of sense I also think about how inositol can reduce inflammation by actually reducing kind of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So these inflammatory substances that we find in the body, some of which are inflammatory in terms of cytokines, others are not, and then also impacts thought processing. This was something that I, I tried to get really detailed about because I found this particularly interesting as we are getting older, especially women in particular you know, as we're losing estradiol and testosterone and progesterone signaling in the brain that can impact how, you know, do we have brain fog? Are we struggling with trying to find the words, understanding that thought processing as we're getting older can sometimes be mitigated by hormonal fluctuations, but understanding that there are are things that we can include into our diet or supplement regimen that can help improve this. And it's interesting that this one research article that I looked at, it was talking about how when serotonin and dopamine levels are not optimized, so these are two neurotransmitters, as these are not optimized, it can actually make anxiety and depression worse. And this alone can impact cognition, memory, and contribute to some of the age-related decline that we see, but how the introduction of some of these lifestyle measures can make a huge net impact. Now, I know for myself personally, I would say that I can accept a lot of things that are changing in my body as I'm getting older, but the brain piece, I'm not willing to accept. So I'm always trying to optimize, <laughs> trying to optimize to make sure I stay sharp. I have teenagers I have to stay on top of and you know, running a business and just being a, a good human. And I'm curious for you, when you were doing your own kind of research, what did you see that was specific to the neurotransmitter processing in the brain? Anything that you could add to that particular research that I had mentioned? So what I saw was similar to what you saw, that it does enhance the brain's ability to maintain both the amount of dopamine and serotonin, but also this part that you had mentioned, the neural pathways helping to support the growth of neural pathways. Well, if you can grow neural pathways faster when you're learning something new, to me, that is a massive advantage because as we age, growing new neural pathways becomes pretty challenging. So if you can do anything to help support that, and I think that's why I like to take the choline with it along with other things that I think support that ability to grow neural pathways. And I take a lot of things that have BDNF in them, such as lion's mane, ginkgo biloba. Not, they don't have BDF in them. They help the body support its own BDNF. Exercise, particularly aerobic exercise, helps with BDNF, which is brain derived neurotropic factor. Basically, that's your fertilizer for your brain to grow new neurons. So that to me was a big one, but also the speed with which and the balance which with the dopamine, serotonin, and I think I think might've mentioned uh, GABA in there as well. That improved balance to me was really the way that I 
I was like, this is something I really feel like is going to be important for my long-term brain health. Because just like you, I can take, I'm 52, you know, my body's not going to bench press 300 pounds anymore. I'm okay with that, but I don't want my brain to decline to the point where, you know, I'm just two steps behind or feeling like I'm not a hundred percent. I want my brain to get as healthy as it possibly can be because by the time I'm 80, right, whatever I'm, my baseline is now, it's not going to get better at 80, but if I can maintain it or make it a little better over the next couple of years and then maintain that for a while, I'm going to have a little bit more capacity as I age. And so to me, I think of all the things I worry about from my longevity health standpoint, it is 100% brain. Yeah, same. And it's interesting how, you know, even 10 years ago, I probably wasn't thinking that way. But the more research that I look at, the more I understand what's happening in the brain as we're getting older, if we're not actively working against the status quo, you know, one of the other really important slash interesting distinctions about brain health as we are getting older is the potentiality of loss of insulin sensitivity and poor metabolic health that understanding that at the basis of insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia is an upregulation and inflammation and oxidative stress, which we know goes on to actually damage our neurons and our brains. And unfortunately, I think for many people, they don't understand the interrelationship that our brains in the latter stages of our lives, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond are made in our 40s and 50s. So understanding how critically important metabolic health is, not just to our bodies, but also our brains is so, so important. And understanding that also maintaining insulin sensitivity can help with buffering these hormonal changes that are happening in women's brains and frankly, men's brains as well. The number one reason why men are you know, dealing with lowered testosterone levels is this loss of insulin sensitivity and also exposure to estrogen mimicking chemicals, as well as women, as they're transitioning from perimenopause into menopause, they're losing estradiol signaling, progesterone signaling, testosterone signaling in the brain that can actually exacerbate underlying insulin resistance. That's a serious problem. And I have heard the type three diabetes analogy of fairly often actually came out of the diabetes world. At that point, they were starting to use things like metformin and TZDs, which are insulin sensitizers for clinical trials in Alzheimer's. And now I don't think those drugs were the right kind of drugs because they don't cross the blood brain barrier. So that's probably, you know, something to think about. Speaking of crossing the blood brain barrier and these issues with, you know, keeping the cell structure intact, chemicals in our diet can actually make your brain, you know, blood brain barrier more permeable and not in a good way, right? So you want to make sure that you've got this, your blood brain barrier, you're doing everything you can do to protect it because if it breaks down and negative chemicals get into the brain, you're going to have more death of neurons and sort of kind of keep your body in this constant state of inflammation that you just spoke about. So that's another thing that in our diets, there's a lot of different chemicals and additives and food additives that you don't even necessarily know are letting things penetrate your blood brain barrier, whether you're aware of that or not. Yeah. And just even thinking, you know, I did a great podcast with Jeffrey Smith, who's this incredible advocate that's doing amazing work, educating people about the dangers of certain types of pesticides and herbicides like glyphosate and understanding that glyphosate creates, you know, small intestine hyperpermeability, aka leaky gut. Guess what? When you get a leaky gut, you've got a leaky brain. So understanding that these things aren't entirely benign and just being conscientious, not feeling like you have to be fearful about your environment, but just being informed and understanding that things like grains where you can get some exogenous sources of inositol can also be 
challenging for the body to break down, especially if you, I'm sure we'll probably talk about this, the role of phytic acid and exposure to these pesticides and herbicides that are designed to make quote unquote healthier crops can actually lead to, you know, mineral issues and not being able to absorb as much minerals from the foods that we think we are, but also deal with, you know, some of the health implications of exposure to said herbicides and pesticides. Yeah, we definitely have to talk about the phytic acid and exogenous sources of natural exogenous sources of uh, inositol. Now, again, we had mentioned that the kidney and the liver make about two grams in the kidney and about a gram in the liver. But one of the studies I read, despite where it's made, the most concentration of inositol is in your brain. So obviously there's something that your brain needs with this, this natural body producing compound that's critically important. But uh, maybe it is time to get into the, the natural sources and why there are some issues there, or did we skip something along the way? No, I mean, it's interesting. You know, we kind of touched on the fact that you can get some exogenous, which means outside the body sources from nuts and grains and beans and fruit. What's interesting though, is that in particular to grains, phytic acid is a component of a cell wall of a plant-based food that can actually impair mineral absorption in the body. So you, you may ingest said food, but your body may not be able to fully optimize. And so the statistic I read last night was that the average diet allows for 720 milligrams a day found in grains and seeds, but can be as low as 250 milligrams or as high as 1600 milligrams, depending on the foods consumed. And it's interesting because as I was looking at different philosophies, research, you know, organ meats can be a great source, but I, I know that organ meats for many people are either things they don't like the taste of the flavor profile, the texture, trying to get these into the diet. But I thought it would be interesting to kind of identify some of the things that can reduce our ability to, you know, be able to extract inositol from food. So number one was insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia. That was number one. And again, only 7% of the population actually is metabolically flexible. So that's important. Low salt intake, you know, we have unfortunately have conditioned an entire generation of clinicians and humans that you want to have a low sodium diet. It's really that you want a less processed diet. You know, most of the salt that people are consuming is iodized salt, which is a low quality type of salt. It's not per se that we shouldn't have salt in our diet because I'll be the first person to say we need high quality salt, but it's the quality of salt that we're consuming. Antibiotic use. I mean, how many people listening have been on multiple rounds of antibiotics? I certainly have had the benefits of needing to take antibiotics, but then understanding that that's largely impacted my entire body diffusely. And then interestingly enough, caffeine intake. So especially coffee can reduce your endogenous stores of myonositol, which I thought was really interesting. You're bumming and, me out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And low magnesium. So I'm always talking yes. about magnesium anyway, but magnesium is critically important for the biosynthesis of myonositol. So just yet another reason why we need more magnesium repletion in our lives. And you just can't get enough <laughs> from eating organic foods or using a whiff of magnesium every day. And I can go off on a whole magnesium tangent and my listeners know this, but those are just some of the ways that our lifestyles, our modern day lifestyles can impact our ability to you know, create endogenous myoinositol and actually make it harder for us to keep our levels optimized in the body. Absolutely. I read the same thing and it was kind of shocking to me because again, I've done a lot of research on 
magnesium. And when I, magnesium was essential to, and I was like, what is magnesium not essential to? It seems to be essential to just about everything in the body. Yeah. But to your point, you know, magnesium is drawn out of you for so many different reasons. Sodium, same thing. If you're completely, you know, sort of sedentary person or you don't, you know, hot sports or saunas are not your thing, or you're not a big sweater, maybe you only need 2000 milligrams a day. But if you're an athlete, especially a competitive athlete, you're going to need probably a lot more than 2000 milligrams of, to your point, quality sodium, not processed sodium that's put into your processed pizza or from, you know, the old fashioned little blue bottle there that's iodized salt. You want a good quality, high mineral, high quality mixture salt. Um, And there's lots available, but yes, those are two critically important things. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's, you know, over 300 enzymatic reactions in the body that utilize magnesium. And this is just one of many examples of why low magnesium is going to impact all of these other processes. And, you know, I'm the first person to say that when I was working in clinical cardiology, we would recommend transdermal. So skin absorbed magnesium and oral magnesium to be able to optimize levels. So just understanding that you know, most magnesiums are are not going to get you to where you need to be. More often than not, most people need two different ways of getting the magnesium in through the skin and then also orally. I'm pretty tolerant of magnesium. I, and I take a number of different kinds of magnesiums, different forms. One form I'm actually looking into a little bit more is magnesium chloride because it's already converted into an electrolyte. Whereas the other magnesium, your body has to take it and convert it into magnesium chloride or essentially to make it a quote unquote electrolyte. So I'm really looking at that as maybe the next thing I add to my diet, but magnesium in in general, I take a lot of in a lot of different forms. I'll mix them up, but I want to get like one foundational magnesium, which I take on a regular basis. And then I usually add like a threonate or a gluconate or biglycinate. And I'm looking into actually two new kinds to potentially launch in the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because listeners will ask, my favorite products are Ancient Minerals. Ancient Minerals, they have a spray that you can use, a spray oil and also a lotion. Very efficacious. That's what we used in electrophysiology, which is a subsect of cardiology. Typically, you spray into two cupped hands, you rub on your trunk and your arms and legs, leave on for 20 minutes and shower off. Very cost-effective. You can get it on the Ancient Minerals website or even probably Amazon. And then the other magnesium that I think is most efficacious for me personally is magnesium L3 and eight. And I take that in powdered formulation, usually before bed. That is one of the very few formulations that will cross the blood brain barrier. So for me, it's all about relaxation, sleep support. And so that's probably the two I use the most of. I would say if anyone listening has magnesium oxide in their medicine cabinet, in their supplement drawer, you only absorb about 11%. It is worth throwing in the garbage. It is so poorly absorbed by the body. And that was what we used to use in the hospital a lot until I knew better. So I always like to share that as a pearl. If you have it, toss it. You don't get much out of it. And you're essentially creating expensive urine. Inevitably, there'll be lots of questions about you know why this supplement at this time. And I think I've been very transparent that my focus for our collaborative work together is metabolic health, brain health, and certainly sleep support because that's such a pain point for so many. So I thought we could talk about a little bit of the indications for why the supplement that we chose to do now, and then talk about dosing and then talk about why MD Logics, you know, standards are so high and, and how that has impacted the decision to kind of collaborate together. So just from a high level perspective, 
40 to 60% of perimenopausal and menopausal women have differing issues surrounding insomnia. Those are not my statistics. That's just statistics that I read. And then overall, 10 to 30% of the overall population, both men and women, some as high as 50 to 60% by the second study I looked at. And we know it's more commonly seen in women. And I think a large amount of that is the fluctuations in progesterone, which oftentimes helps us fall asleep and changes in estradiol, predominant form of estrogen, as we're transitioning out of our cycling years into perimenopause, helps us stay asleep. And there was an article, a meta-analysis in Frontiers in Psychiatry that talked about in observational studies, there's a higher prevalence in women than men. I don't think we needed a study to confirm that just from talking to patients over the years, certainly a greater issue for women than men. And then understanding that inositol helps us fall asleep. And then if we wake up in the middle of the night, we'll allow us to fall asleep more easily. And even Huberman Lab talks yes. about how myo-inositol is part of his sleep stack. He uses it several times a week, just makes it part of his sleep stack. I love my own sleep stack, but this is an absolutely integral part of it. We know that myo-inositol impacts serotonin levels, which induces a sense of peace and calm. Certainly the way that you want to be thinking as you're kind of heading off to bed And then it also has direct communication with GABA. GABA is this inhibitory neurotransmitter that we find in the brain and can help support healthy function of the receptors there. So again, inhibitory neurotransmitter that we are positively impacting by the utilization and the supplementation of myo-inositol. Yeah, the number of things that it does for sleep is really remarkable. As we talked about the faster onset of sleep, the higher quality of sleep, the sleep architecture, the ability to fall asleep if you wake up. And that's my problem. I can fall asleep, but I will inevitably wake up at one in the morning, thoughts racing. And two hours later, I'm still looking you know, at a podcast or something and I, I can't fall asleep. Now, I try not to take my phone to bed, but when I wake up at one in the morning, I'm like, I need something to kind of soothe my brain back, that back to sleep. So that's great. And my, yeah, I have a sleep stack too, which now includes myonositol. And I also do my melatonin with that, as well as I'm just recently experimenting with L-theanine, which I'm really liking. I haven't quite dialed in the right dosage yet or like timing, but I really like L-theanine both during the day as sort of a a cognitive enhancer with my coffee. It keeps me from getting jittery and kind of balance that that caffeine out. And then I take one of our products uh, along with it, which is a choline alpha GPC, acetylcarnitine and uh, phosphatidylserine blend. I take that along with L-theanine in the morning. And then I take the L-theanine, the uh, inositol and the melatonin at night. And with that combo, I've been sleeping really well. That's great. And it's interesting because I have found that if I take the inositol every night, it works better than just using it as needed. So I do think there's some degree of cumulative effect The therapeutic dose that I have found is one gram in the evening is very effective. If you look at research on polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, you can definitely see therapeutic benefit from two grams twice a day. But obviously, if you're working with someone on your PCOS, an endocrinologist, a GYN, an integrative trained, you know, healthcare practitioner, they may have you on other items as well. So definitely worth discussing with them. And it's interesting. There was one research article that talked about dosing in menopause is three grams a night. I haven't experimented with that, but having said that, I think the nice thing is, you know, you can adjust, you know, if I'm having a particularly stressful day, I may take two grams at night as opposed to one gram. I think it's, you know, a nice starting point is one gram. And I do find that most of my patients do really well at that dose. 
So I've been doing about three grams and that's been sort of my, you know, the perfect sweet amount. Spot. Take you know one gram in the day, two grams before bed. That seems to be my sweet spot. Four grams seems a bit much. So I've kind of been balancing around two to three grams. One of the other things I, I wonder if it, you know, it helps with sleep is, and maybe this is because of the GABA, but it has been shown to reduce cravings for binge eating disorder. It's been shown to help in panic disorders. It's been shown to help with some certain anxieties and OCDs. And I just wonder if all of these also are contributing to like the overall ability to sleep. If you have less anxiety, you're going to sleep better. Or is it you're, you're getting sleep, thus your anxiety is lower. It's chicken and egg sort of thing, but it just seems to kind of be working across the, the spectrum of things that disrupt sleep. Yeah, I think it's important just to understand that as you mentioned, the chicken or the egg, you know, looking at it as what is contributing to the changes in sleep. For a lot of people, they're anxious by nature. It's hard to shut their brain off. And so, you know, things like L-theanine, as you mentioned and alluded to, is a really nice amino acid. It's interesting, you know, we have components of L-theanine in green tea. We'd have to drink quite a bit to get enough L-theanine on board, but it, you know, that calming effect that you get from L-theanine, that can be a nice adjunct to other types of sleep support I would be remiss if we didn't at least touch quickly on metabolic health. I know we've talked a bit about it. We know only 7% of adults in the United States are metabolically healthy and fewer than one in 15 have optimal metabolic health. That means that you're not being treated for high blood pressure or, or elevated triglycerides. You know, you don't have a waist circumference greater than 45 inches if you're a male, greater than 35 inches if you're a female. It means your fasting blood sugar is optimized. You know, I like to say between 75 and 90 and you have appropriate levels of HDL. So for women greater than 55, men greater than 45, and technically the metabolic syndrome diagnosis is made when you have three out of five of those. We know that myo-inositol can be helpful for insulin sensitizing, and there's solid randomized controlled trials on this. So it's not, we're not just, you know, sharing, you know, cherry picking research. We're really looking at the research. It can effectively help to promote weight loss in conjunction with that. And what I liked was there was one study that was talking about, it can be used in conjunction with other medications like glucophage, magnesium, progesterone. In particular, you can utilize these concurrently. Again, if you're on any of these medications, talk to your prescribing provider. We're not providing medical advice. We're just providing guidance in terms of what the research is showing. It was interesting. There was one article that talked about how utilizing inositol with whey protein will help for better absorption. So if you're not dairy intolerant, like I am, you know, for a lot of other people, you could probably throw it in with a shake or, you know, make a protein pudding and know that you'll get better absorption from the whey utilization. I did not read about that. That's uh, interesting. But now that I know coffee decreases my inositol, I'm going to put two grams in my coffee in the morning. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. And I think something that I think would be super helpful is to explain to listeners, you know, we have this partnership together that we are co-collaborating on supplements. What is it about MD Logic that distinguishes your company from other companies on the market? There's a couple of things. The first is what we've tried to do is partner with people like yourself that have extremely high standards of what they are looking for. So we don't want to, we don't do white label, which is private labeling a product that you already make and then just putting someone else's name on it. That's not what we're about. We're about clinicians or people that are in the know that understand what they want in their supplement, what they're customers want. That's the place we first start is who are the people we want to work with? Because we want to make sure that they are as committed to the quality as we are. 
that they're trying to do the best possible thing for their clients and patients, because otherwise it would reflect negatively on us. So that's where we start. So it starts with the quality of who the client is that wants to create a supplement with us. And then it goes through what we consider the gold standard of GMP. Now, GMP has sort of its baseline standards, and many companies are GMP certified, but that doesn't mean they are GMP compliant, meaning you can have a GMP facility that's had multiple violations over three to five years. And I'm not suggesting that you know every company has to have a zero, never has had a GMP violation, because they'll give you a violation for small things, potentially. And when I say they, that's the FDA. And so what we do is we start the process by looking at the ingredient itself, making sure that the ingredient itself, before it even comes onto the factory floor. Now, this is not necessarily what most companies do because you only legally have to test it at the end of the process. But we don't even want to bring the product into the door, into the quarantine facility where we make the products, because if it's infected with mold or toxins, it could spill over to other things. So every product is tested for toxins, mold, heavy metals, purity, strength, and identity before it even gets into the facility. Then what we do is we take that product and we create it in in the perfect GMP process, which is you have to make sure that the product is stored at a certain temperature. You have to make sure that you use certain specification sheets. So even the documentation to make the product is important. So we make sure that all, if we make what's called a variation from time to time or a standard operating procedure, that every one of those is filled out, that each process is followed, that the person in charge of the facility is following that SOP to the letter of the law, meaning if they say it has to be six inches above the ground, the product has to be stored six inches above the ground. All of our products are then stored in climate controlled. Then we send them out for uh, testing. Some products we send out for third-party testing, but we do two in-house tests, which is again, we do all of those same things again at the end of the product. So let's say we're making a combination product and we use seven ingredients. Well, after it goes through the whole process, you want to make sure of a couple of things. One, is it still as pure and clean as the day it arrived? And are the, all of the strengths, purity, and potency, and identity of those products, what we said is in there. So if we said there's 100 milligrams of vitamin C, there's 100 milligrams of vitamin C. If we said there's 200 milligrams of astragalus, there's 200 milligrams of astragalus. And then is it pure? Does it still have the same levels of heavy metal as when it came into the factory? Or did it get exposed to something? So it gets tested before it comes in. We follow all of those other regulations. Because if you leave something on the floor, it could get wet and it gets moldy. So what came in as clean is now on your floor. It gets moist because it's on a concrete slab and then it might create mold. So we do the testing at the very beginning, all for the GMP plus heavy metals. And for certain products, we'll send it out for additional testing, such as enzyme products. We'll test out to make sure that the SPUs of the enzyme are active, that there's what we say, how many 125,000 for our serpeptase, for example, we send that up for third-party testing to make sure that that's how many active enzymes are in each of those capsules. So it's not just an internal test, it's also external. Now, some folks say, oh, we third-party test, but that also means that they third-party, they're paying another client and another entity that they don't know the facility and they don't know if they're doing their job correctly. So it, it sounds great to do third-party testing, but unless you know that third party really well and you know they're following all GMP, you really want to have your own ownership and oversight to make sure that the lab assistants are doing that job properly. So we do both an internal and then what we need to, we'll send things out for third party. On occasion, we'll send things out. If we're like questioning the uh, potential toxins of something, we'll send it out for an additional screening for pesticides, for example. 
So we go through a very rigorous process. And then at the end, we also test it for shelf stability. So every single step along the way, before it gets into the consumer's hand, it's been sort of chain of custody tested across the board for strength, compliance, identity, toxins, heavy mold, et cetera, at the beginning, at the end, and it's climate stored from that process from the beginning to the end. The only part of that process we can't control is if it's in a UPS truck in California, you know, there might be a couple of hours, but we test things to make sure that they can withstand that kind of temperature for a couple of hours. Whereas when you go to a mega warehouse, you know, let's just say box stores and shipping stores, for example, you have no idea how long it's been sitting there. You have no idea if it's been followed, GMP has been followed through that process. And so we feel really good about the products we send out because the ingredients are what we say, purity is what we say, the heavy metals are what we say, and we pass all of those tests at the front and the back end. That's what we feel really good about. And then we work really hard to make sure that the product we're delivering has the least amount of toxic things in it and is the best for the environment it can possibly be. And we're working more and more towards that with each new product. Now we're a young company, so we inherited some of the products we have, but each time we redo a product, we're taking out the steroids and the palmitates, making it in a glass bottle to reduce fat phthalates in the world and plastics in general. You know, you and I could talk about that plastics forever. So we're really taking extraordinary efforts to make sure that the product that shows up at your door is the best possible quality you can get. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for that. I talk all the time about you know, how most pharmaceutical grade companies don't third-party source to Amazon. I think a, a lot of individuals are surprised to know that you know, buying pharmaceutical grade supplements is really the way to go. If you're going to choose to take a supplement, making sure that you're purchasing from a, a company that has such a rigorous set of standards for evaluation, transportation, and preservation of their products. Now for listeners that are still listening and tuning in, want to be fully transparent and share that the pre-sale for Myo Inositol or Inositol starts on March 11th through the 19th. Um, you can get 25% off and you can go to www.cynthiatherlow.com slash Inositol. That's I-N-O-S-I-T-O-L, a little bit of a mouthful. And then from March 20th to the 31st, you can get 15% off. So obviously you want to jump on board when it goes on sale and then understanding you don't need a code for the pre-sale that will get you directly to the discounted price. Again, www.cynthiatherlow.com slash inositol, I-N-O-S-I-T-O-L. A little bit of a mouthful, but it's fully worth it. Scott, always a pleasure to connect with you. Let my listeners how to connect with you outside of the podcast, how to reach you on social media or through your website. So the best place to reach me is at Longevity Protocol on Instagram or College and Guru on TikTok, if that's your thing. But primarily, I don't do Facebook, so you won't, you won't find me there. And if you would like to get a hold of me directly uh, to talk to me specifically about anything, you can reach out to the mdlogichealth.com is our website. Reach out to us there. Just say, hey, I'd like to speak to Scott Emmons, and uh, our assistant will get you in touch with me. Great. Thanks so much again, Scott. It's always a pleasure connecting with you. Cynthia, pleasure as always. Thank you so much. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe, and tell a friend. 